reading uh, from Titus chapter 2 in the NIV. So if you have it on your phones there or on the old school Bible, um, Titus chapter 2. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Saviour attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Good morning, everyone. Um, my name's Steve, if I haven't met you. I always say that and then realise it's still Steve, even if you haven't met me, but that's the old joke. We're a little bit smaller today, which means you get the kind of the, the advanced class. You get ahead of everyone else. Um, you know that we're working our way through Titus. We're up to Titus chapter 2. Next week's Titus chapter 3. And then after that, um, Tom will be back from visiting Cairns and he'll take us back to finish off Ephesians. That was the, the COVID-modified preaching plan. There you go. How about we pray as we come to Titus chapter 2. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we look at your word in the Bible now, we pray that you would be at work speaking to our hearts. Lord, we ask that the truth of the gospel would change the way that we live. We pray that understanding your grace and your mercy would change our behaviour. And we pray in Jesus' name. In life, um, life is full of rules. We have road rules, we have local council rules, we have tax rules, we have PCQ rules. We, in this place here, they have school rules. And it's not just all of life, it's even in our leisure time, there's rules. So you go to play a sport, there's rules to follow. You play a board game, there's rules that you need to follow. Rules everywhere. When we want people to behave a certain way, we write rules. You might have rules on the fridge rules about who's doing the cleaning, who's doing... I mean, we've got rosters up the back, kind of like rules. 
But rules can only go so far because if someone wants to do something else, well, they will disobey the rules. They will find a way around the rules. And so what we do then is we add some incentive. And so you add rewards for good behaviour, just like training a dog, and you have punishment for bad behaviour. And again, that works to a, decree, to a degree, except that we're sort of manipulating, aren't we? We're not really changing a person's heart. They're behaving a particular way for the reward or in fear of the punishment. So it's no surprise that over the years Christians have got into this thing too. So you come to church one week and there's not many people here and so you work out rules and you it doesn't work, does it? It doesn't work. What needs to happen is there needs to be a change in our heart that then changes our behaviour. And what's refreshing about this part of the Bible is as you look at Titus chapter 2, what Paul does here is he shows you the gospel and how that will lead to a change of heart. It's the gospel that teaches us to live godly lives. It's God's grace that's transforming our lives. It's understanding the forgiveness and the hope that we have in Christ that will give us this heartfelt desire to want to live, to please our great God. So we're looking at um, the New Testament book of Titus. It's really very short. Last week we looked at chapter 1 and we saw that Paul was concerned there with the truth that leads to godliness. And here, as you come to chapter 2, you get to the godliness that that truth leads to. So last week in chapter 1, we discovered Paul the Apostle. He's writing to Titus, his true son in the faith. Titus, who is left on the island of Crete. Um, Paul's writing this kind of open letter that Titus can share with the Christians on the island there, kind of showing that behind him is the authority of the Apostle as well. And so Paul tells Titus to keep hanging on to the truth of the gospel, the truth that leads to godliness. In chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, Paul preaches the gospel truth which leads to godliness. In verses 5 to 9 of chapter 1, he wants godly men or godly elders appointed in every town to lead the church and the churches there. And in verses 10 to 16, he gives the reason because there are damaging lies in Crete. So that was chapter 1. It's concerned with the truth of the gospel. Then you come to chapter 2, and here you have the godliness that the truth of the gospel will lead to. And you've got verse 1 of chapter 2 and the, and verse 15, the kind of bracket, everything that he's got to teach. Look at how chapter 1 blends into chapter 2. So the last verse of chapter 1 goes, They, these people on Crete, claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him their detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good. And there's no chapter breaks in the original. This was just a letter that was sent from Paul to Titus rolls into 2 verse 1, as for you, or you however, you must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And so at the start and the end of this chapter, we've got this bracketing of what he is to teach. If you look down in verse 15, there's the conclusion of this section, these then are the things you should teach. Verse 1, I want you to teach. Verse 15, that's what you should teach. It kind of brackets it nicely. As you look through from verses 1 to 15, the first 10 verses spell out the godliness that the gospel will lead to. And then in verse 11 to 14, you get back to the truth that sits behind it, the gospel that sits behind it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to go to the end bit first. We're going to start at verse 11, this reminder of the truth of the gospel that will lead to the change in behaviour. And there's three aspects of the truth that will lead to godliness. Firstly, there's God's grace. You'll see in verses 11 and 12. And then there's the hope of Jesus coming, that you'll see in verse 13. 
And then there's God's plan or God's intention through all this. So God's grace in what has already been achieved in Christ, the hope of what Jesus will do when he returns, and God's plan or God's intention. So if you look at verse 11, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people, it, or God's grace, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. The grace of God teaching us to live a particular way. Verse 13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour Jesus Christ, the hope of Jesus returning, again, shaping the way that we live. And then verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. His purpose, his plan for us. So God's grace in the past, the hope in the future, and God's purpose, all three things work together to influence and change the way that we live. Um, you'll see there too that it mentions God's generosity, his grace to save all people. And that starts the little discussion of, you know, does God intend to save everybody? I think when you're looking in the context of this letter, I think what it means is all types of people, as in, in particular, Jew and Gentile, all people. So not everyone necessarily, but everyone has the offer put to them. When you think about that's God's grace, the hope, God's plans, when you think about us and the way we live, I honestly think that we do get very distracted from the hope of Jesus returning. We get very tied up in this world and what's immediately in front of us and what we're living for today, rather than being driven and shaped by the fact that Jesus will return. And that's God's plan. It's going to happen. So God's grace in everything he's done in Christ, Jesus' return or the hope of Jesus' return and God's plans for our lives. All three things work together to shape the way that we should behave. I'm still looking at verses 11 to 14. Not only are we given three reasons to be godly, we're given three ways that we will be godly. Firstly, we'll say no to things. Secondly, we'll say yes to being self-controlled and godly. And third, we'll, we ought to have a new perspective as we wait for Jesus' return. So we understand, if we understand God's generosity, if we're hoping for Jesus to return, we say no, we say yes, and we have this new perspective on things. Have another look at verse 14. God saved us to be his people, to belong to him, to do what's good. Jesus gave his life for you and for me, to free us, to save us from wickedness. Why? To purify for himself a people that are his very own who are eager to do what is good. So we're still at point one on your sermon outline. This is, in verses 11 to 14, this is the truth of the gospel which will lead to a change in behaviour. Godliness because of the gospel. Godliness not because of rules, not because of reward, but because of who God is and what he's done for us. Still on point one, in verses 3 to 10, so now we're going up to the top of the passage, in verses 3 to 10, what Paul does is, as he's writing to Crete, he spells out what this godliness, what this change in behaviour is going to look like for different groups of people. Um, he instructs Titus to give, uh, to teach what's fitting or appropriate for someone who understands the gospel who's an old man, a young man, an old woman, a younger woman, and even slaves in the home. And I figure, why not put all this on the screen behind us? As you look through it, verse 1, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Verse 2, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-control, sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Temperate. I mean, I use that word every day. Not. 
if you look it up, it's it's this idea of not being extreme. Um, showing, you know, or practicing a kind of moderation, not, not overreacting to things. Um, you can also use the word temperate in the context of abstaining from alcohol. It's it's kind of this control, self-control. Verse two goes on to say, worthy of respect. Worthy of respect. It's respect is something which you earn over time, isn't it? As people learn to trust you, learn that you are reliable, learn that you're not going to be overreacting, that you're temperate. Um, it talks about being truthful, temperate, reliable. If you can do all that, then yeah, you do earn people's respect and their trust. It's the way these things work. Older men are to be self-controlled. Other translations say sensible or mastering yourself, having control over your actions. This idea of your thoughts and your action actually being connected, self-control, the thought and action connected, knowing um, the truth and having the truth control what you do. And as you look at what uh, Paul's telling Titus to teach older men, you think, hang on, we've heard this before, haven't we? And you have. If you look back at chapter 1, verses 8 to 9, these are the kind of things which you're to look for in the elder, the overseer. So verse 8 of chapter 1 says, Rather he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. What you require, uh, or what uh, Titus is to teach the older man, is what you look for in the elders. In other words, what you're looking for is the kind of qualities you would want to see in any Christian, any mature Christian. Moving along, we come to verses 2 and 3. Um, in verse 3, Paul says, likewise, or in the same way, just like you have to teach the older men to be like this, it says, likewise, verse 3, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children. So these um, instructions here are specifically to older women, but they have the similar basis, likewise. As you understand the truth of the gospel, let it show in your life. And it's like you know, trying to make his, his letter as applicable as possible to the circumstances and the situation there on the island of Crete. Old, older women are to be reverent in the way they live, you know, holding things in respect, not, not being frivolous and uncaring. They're not to be slanderers, not to be gossiping, tearing others apart, not to buy in on those 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 conversations about people that are not appropriate, um, not to be addicted to much much wine, able to teach what is good. And you notice too, when it comes to it, it then transitions to the younger women, but it does it through the older women. It's Titus isn't the one told to teach younger women how to behave, and there's kind of a you know an appropriateness to that. So um, Paul doesn't tell Titus to instruct younger women. Titus is to teach the older women, who are then to model and teach to the younger women. Um, the older women are to teach the younger women to, be, to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, to be pure, to be busy at home or, or good homemakers, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands. Um, there are similarities in the, in the instructions to the younger women. There's this self-control that's mentioned there. But I think for us, in our setting, in our context, verse 4 sort of bleeps on the page, doesn't it? Pops off the page. Teach the young women to be busy at home. It kind of promotes the role of young women in home life, which is a great thing. 
Um, verse 5, it says, teach them to be subject to the husband. And it's so easy to take that the wrong way, to see it as a negative thing. But it's the idea of deferring to or submitting to. Um, we all submit in different contexts. Um, we all submit to one another out of, in, in, out of reverence for Christ. If you look in Ephesians chapter 5, which we looked at at the wedding last weekend. Um, but it can be done in a way that's part of being on the same team, working together, that sort of submission, being on the same team. Both verses 4 and 5, they, they just sound very countercultural, don't they? They feel like they're dated. And we do need to take into account the context, the time this was written, who it's written to. You do take that into account. But at the same time, we need to realise Paul's coming here from a point of understanding the gospel. It's, it's theological as well as cultural. Um, so there's more than just culture involved here. So verse 1 and verse 15 is, is the reminder that Paul's to teach, uh, Titus is to teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. And I think as if he was writing to us in 2022, I reckon there'd be a few different bits added in here when it comes to men and women in our role in the home, wouldn't it? For, for example, I think Paul would, in light of the plebiscite, mention that marriage is man and woman. I mean, that's just a given in at his time of writing. What I'm saying is, yeah, take into account the cultural differences between then and now. But keep in mind that this is a theological reasoning for living a particular way. And, I mean, the plebiscite makes it ever so plain. As Christians, we are very different to the society around us. So try to understand what the Bible is saying marriage should look like. Live that out, and we will be different to the world around us. And it's not just Titus 2 that talks about um, husbands and wives and their relationship. I mean, the passage from the wedding last week was Ephesians 5. And Ephesians 5 verse 33 summarises a Christian marriage down to, for the blokes, work on loving. I mean... That's your big thing. And for the women, work on respecting. That's your big thing. Love and respect. Put that together, you've got a perfect relationship where it's not about being equal. It's about being united on the same team. About being the same the same family, the same couple. Um, on the same team where, for some reason, God has said, the husband's the captain of that team. That's the way it works. So we stand out as being different to the world around us. And I think like this has been a bit of a massive aside that jumps off the page for us, a bit of a detour. But the important thing is, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, they're not the only verses that talk about Christian homes and Christian families. Um, it's similar, um, and, and the other thing to take away from this is the priority given here to the home. Yeah, I mean, it zooms in on the young women being good homemakers, but I think in our day and age, we've cheapened parenting. We've played it down. Not just for mums, but for dads as well. It's it's like it's all right to sacrifice time with your kids for your career. It's just it's the wrong kind of push, the wrong kind of emphasis. Raising kids is a valuable task, an important thing to be doing. So we need to take care in reading two verses four to five. Yes, there is a cultural element to it, but there's the theology that sits behind it. This is Paul telling Titus, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. We're going to look different to the world around as we as we live these things out. Coming back to the passage again, um, Paul instructs Titus what to teach that is in accord um, with sound doctrine. He then comes to the young men. And like all young men, you know, you've got to keep it simple. You've got to keep it straightforward. He just zooms in on the one thing. Verse 6. Similarly, encourage 
young men to be self-controlled. And that is the similarly. It's like in the same way you teach older men, the, the older women, the younger women, in the same way you teach the younger men and the big thing that he singles out, the one thing that he singles out, the only thing is to be self-controlled. Young blokes, um, I used to say we when I was preaching on this passage, but you, young blokes, you. There's this tendency not to think about the consequences of your actions, just to get in there and do it, not, not to think five minutes ahead of yourself. Self-control, um, that's what you're meant to be working on. You, know, you translate that as sensible in some translations. To, to, to use your head, to let the truth influence how you act. Um, verse again, verse 6, similarly encourage young men to be self-controlled. He's telling Titus, I take it Titus is a younger man. He's not telling Titus, you know, beat them into line. No, he's saying encourage, urge, um, nudge, redirect, model to them what it means to be self-controlled. Self -control. So Titus, who's probably in that younger category, he's one of these younger men, is to encourage his peers to live in a way that's appropriate in accordance with the gospel. So verse 7, in everything set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching show integrity, seriousness, soundness of speech that cannot be condemned. As you look back at the table so far, self-control is that big common element all the way through, isn't it? Self-control. It's the idea of having thought and behaviour closely linked. Strong-minded. Linking to behaviour. Knowing the truth, letting it control what you do. The other thing um, you'll notice is verse 3 verse 6, and I think it's implied in verse 4, this similarly, likewise. It's all based on the same truth. The same truth looks different for each of us. Yes, we're all equal in God's eyes, but there's different things for us to be working on. The last instruction he gives is to the slaves, and at this point, yeah, the context is different, isn't it? We don't have slaves as part of our life, part of our homes. Well, at least I hope we don't. <laughs> Not in the terms we think of. In Paul's context, I take it slaves were different to what we think of when we immediately think of slavery. And I'm sure that there would be extra bits put in here against um, some of the um, you know, child labour and that sort of thing. I think there would be mentioned if it was written in 2022. But in this context where slaves were part of the home, he even gives instructions to the Christian slaves, I take it. And as you take into account the cultural differences between then and now, I think we would profit mostly with verses 9 and 10 if we think of the, church, of, the of the work situation or the school situation where you're called on um, to submit to someone else, to their authority, that sort of setting. But I'm not saying that you should consider work slavery. If that's the case, that's not right. So have a look at verse 9. It says, Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try and please them, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about our God and Saviour attractive. I think, you know, the workplace is probably the most similar context we can think of. And so whether it's your, your boss or your lecturer or your supervisor, your tutor, your teacher, whatever it is, you know, are you subject to them? That's that word again, isn't it? Are you allowing them to be in charge? Are you the kind of person who, the fact that you're a Christian shows in the way that you are compliant? Do what you're told. Are you subject to them? Um, do you try to please them, or, or do you talk back, make their life hard, just be a rebel for the sake of being a rebel? Do you steal from them? 
their time or money or stationery or cheating on your exam, whatever it might be? Do you show that you can be trusted? These are things which, if you are a Christian, if you understand the gospel, it will unravel in those ways in your life. You'll see it. So in the context of the counterfeit Christians on the island of Crete, um, you, uh, people who in chapter 1 verse 16, they claim to know God and yet they deny him. In that context, Paul says to Titus, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Let it show in people's lives. Old men, young men, old women, young women are to be living out their understanding of the gospel. It's to show. And that's still one point on the sermon outline. Thankfully, the second one takes half a second. As you run back through the passage, so we've seen point one, you know, godliness because of the gospel. The other thing you see is you run back through the passage, you'll see that this called be godly for the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. Um, did you notice the added benefit of living godly lives? There's these kind of purpose statements, in order that, so that, as you run your eyes through it, look at the second half of verse 5, so that no one will malign God's word. Well, look at 2 verse 8. Those who oppose will have nothing to say. You, be, you behave in a godly way so that those who are opposed to the gospel have nothing on it. And verse 10, the second half of the verse, so that you make the truth attractive to others. As you live a life that's shaped by the gospel, you also promote the gospel, make the gospel attractive to others. Um, living changed lives, it's that important. It's extremely important in God's scheme of things. Um, but making the gospel attractive, it's not our motivation. You're not trying to trick people. Your motivation comes from understanding the gospel. Verses 11 to 14, the truth. That's what changes the way that you, the way that you live. Um, we do try um, to influence people's behaviour with lots of rules. Um, we do the reward thing, we do the punishment thing. But here in Titus chapter 2, what you've got is the gospel truth. Understanding God's grace, understanding the hope, looking forward to Jesus' return, seeing things from God's perspective. All these things shape the way that we live. And so I guess the questions we need to ask ourselves, well, you know, do you actually understand the gospel? Have you come to appreciate Jesus' death in your place, what he's done for you? Do you understand that truth? And are you living in line with the truth of the gospel? Are we responding to God's generosity by saying no? being like everyone else, saying yes, to being distinctively Christian. Let's pray that we are. Let's pray again. Father, we thank you for giving us each the opportunity to hear the truth about Jesus. We thank you for the grace that you have shown us. We thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to die in our place. Thank you for redeeming us from all wickedness and for purifying us for you to do what is good. But please keep working in us with the truth of the gospel to change us so that we can say no to things that are inappropriate, so that we'll be saying yes to things that are consistent with the gospel. But please help us each to be self-controlled, to live upright and godly lives while we wait for Jesus to return. And Father, we pray that as a church, and we pray that we'll be helping each other to be distinct. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name.